Second Peter chapter two. The last time we uh, saw the Apostle Peter, knowing his time was short, he even said it in his word. He knew that he was going to die. He had great insight from the Holy Spirit when he walked with Jesus. Jesus spoke to him in the manner that he was going to die. So he shares, he leaves his legacy of love and shares with the scattered and persecuted church in the area through his letter. And today and next Sunday, we're going to take this chapter and, and divide it in half. But we're going to see an eye-opening account of those who continue to distort God's word and their ultimate demise. And today we're going to see the fact and, and the reality of God's judgment in past examples and future promises. Uh, we look at the Bible promise book and it promises that God will always be with us. And, and, you know, God leaves us his Holy Spirit when we're saved and so many promises. But part of the promises of God's word is future judgment. And no pastor enjoys speaking about hell and damnation. But the fact is that nobody has to go there. Like Clint said, uh, the Bible is clear in many scriptures that God's desire is that all would come to salvation. That's why Jesus died for the whole world. Halas cosmos, the entire world. First John tells us that Jesus is the propitiation not only for our sins, but of the halas cosmos, the whole world. And that's important. And next Sunday, more on those that, especially in Peter's time, these false teachers would end up, uh, you know, really bringing judgment upon themselves. So you would ask the question, what is the big deal with false doctrine? Who cares? You know, what does it matter? One church from another, one interpretation from another. The answer is that words are powerful. We know that in the Genesis account, God spoke creation into existence. And Jesus said that words, our words are a reflection of our heart, of who we really are inside. And we even know that today, you know, the expression is, the pen is mightier than the sword. If you want to destroy someone's, uh, you want to destroy someone, you can do it much easier if you slander them than even with a sword. So words are very important. We know that evil men through the ages, all you have to do is pick up a history book, have swayed the masses with their words to gain power. And we know that cult leaders use words to twist the minds uh, and control their followers. So we're going to jump into chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Peter says, but... There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So it starts out with but, and we know that centuries later, someone put in chapter delineations and verse delineations, but this was to be read as a continuing letter. So there's really no break here. If you were here with us last Sunday, uh, Peter spoke about the prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write God's word and predict certain offense that no other holy book could do. Not the Quran, not the Book of Mormon, not any, uh, you know, the Hindu Vedas, whatever you want to look at, there's nothing like God's word. Because as it, it tells you events that will happen in the near future, hundreds of years in the future, and even thousands of years, there's things that are happening that are coming to pass in our lifetime that were predicted 2,000 years ago and more. Very impressive. 
uh, God's word. So there's the encouraging part of it. And that was good. But we know that there are forces of evil at work. So here's the bad news. He says, but as there were false prophets back then, there's going to continue to be false prophets and false teachers. We know the scripture tells us that. Jesus told us that himself. And number one, it'll bring, they'll bring upon themselves uh, destructive heresies. Now we know that whatever we believe with our heart will determine where we spend eternity. That's a fact. That's all throughout God's word, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Believing in a Jesus not characteristic of God's word is another Jesus, as the Apostle Paul says, a false Jesus and one that cannot save. It's a Jesus or a God that we make in our own image. There are many who say, well, if I was God, I wouldn't make a hell. If I was God, there wouldn't be suffering. So what we've done when we say that is we make a God in our own image, a little idol, and we worship it. But that's not the true God. We should spend more time trying to understand who God is and what he says through his word than trying to make a God that fits our lifestyle. Number two, he says, denying the one that bought them. This is impressive. Bought. And we've seen this all throughout the scripture. Uh, Pastor Anthony did the book of Hosea, where Hosea the prophet, uh, God tells him to marry Gomer. And she keeps leaving him and going off astray and uh, whores herself with other men. And then she gets to the point where she's so decadent that she's in a slave market. And God tells Hosea, go there and buy her out of that slave market and continue to be with her as she is your wife. And that was a picture of what God did with his own people, with the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. They kept straying and God kept going and bringing them back. But the greatest significance of being bought is the fact that we're all slaves to sin before the cross. And Jesus had to come and literally buy us from that slave market of sin. And you might say, well, you know, I'm not a murderer. I'm not, but that's your comparison. That's relativism. Where do we draw the line? Well, I haven't killed, but I stole. Well, Russ hasn't killed or stole, but he thought bad thoughts. Where's the delineation between righteous and unrighteous? The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So any sin breaks that chain and we need a savior. So Jesus came and bought us from that slave market of sin. He redeemed us. He purchased us with his blood. Now, context is very important. What is the apostle Peter going through as he's writing this? Remember, the cults do one of two things, and there's uh, some variation. What the cults do is they either... Uh, take Christ from his glorious position as deity and bring him down and say he was just a man. He was a prophet. They make him sound good, but they, they strip him of his deity or they try to. Other cults will take man and elevate us to say that we can become like gods. So yeah, Jesus is God. He's God-like, but we can also be like God. So be aware of that. The third thing that we see, the result is swift and certain destruction for these false teachers. And sadly, in verse 2, we see that many buy into this heresy because it suits their lifestyle. Now I'll say this. I've coined a term called desire-based theology. And basically what that means is whatever your lifestyle is, you may go from church to church to synagogue to wherever you want to go, house of worship, until you find a faith that suits your lifestyle. Well, I certainly don't want to go to church where they talk about hell. I certainly don't want to go to a church where they say that my lifestyle is sinful. 
That's desire-based theology. Whatever your desire is, well, there's a whole smorgasbord of faith out there that it's very easy. You can pick from column A or column B, and that will suit your lifestyle. So God calls us, though, to sacrifice. It isn't all about us. It isn't all about our desires, our needs. It's about the truth. And that's why a lot of pastors and a lot of churches will not speak about hell. They can't fill football stadiums if they're giving a downer on a Sunday morning. They'll leave pretty much half of the Bible out and preach only the syrupy things or the sweet things to draw a crowd. Now understand this. I'm saved by the blood of Christ. But the blood or the salvation that I have, that I've received, isn't really amazing until I understand what I've been saved from. Well, Clint touched on uh, hell. He spoke about an e- a Christless eternity, a godless eternity, a- an eternity of damnation. When I know really what, where I was going, and for 28 years I lived my own life. It wasn't until 28 years old that I started following the Lord. So I've lived on both sides of the fence. But understand that I now know what I was saved from, and it makes that salvation all the more sweeter. Verse 3. He says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. An alternate translation is, with feigned words, they will make merchandise of you. Now, with feigned words, I love this. The Greek word is plastois, where we get the word in English, plastic, molded, or fake words. They will do whatever they can to make merchandise out of you, to get your money. Not all get into ministry for the right reasons. And you know as well as I do, especially as a pastor, you hear uh, one of the biggest complaints of organized religion is they just want my money. Well, it happened back then, and nothing's changed 2,000 years later. For a long time, he says, their destruction has not been idle. And the question is, why why doesn't God carry out immediate justice? Why doesn't God just zap people like he did in the Old Testament, have the ground open up? Uh, Why don't we see those great displays of of, uh, his power in these times? But the answer is this, because God is patient. And he also doesn't want it to be a behavioral response. Now understand this, if every time we were bad, this is like Pavlov's dog, or if you follow anything in behaviorism, if every time you do something wrong, you get smacked by the Lord, Well, after that happens about a hundred times, you're going to be real careful about doing things wrong, right? God is not looking for a behavioral response. God is looking for a true heart change. God is a long-suffering God. And as we've seen before, rest assured, all the wrongs will be righted in the end. We can count on God's justice. But his response and his uh, patience, his long-suffering is the reason. He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I can tell you this, I'm happy that the Lord put up with me for 28 years uh, and he was long-suffering with me because I was on the wrong road and uh, I've repented of my self-directed life. But we see this, the worst of the worst, in the name of religion, in the name of faith, in the name of God, Peter says, some will use you with plastic words, with feigned words, to make merchandise out of you, to turn you into a cash cow, so to speak. Now, I will tell you this, that I know many that have been burnt. You know, maybe they were involved in a cult, a bona fide cult. Maybe they were married or in the family of a so-called religious leader. And I will tell you that it takes such a long time 
to deprogram them and to convince them how much God loves them. See, the satanic design is to keep you from the love of God. Keep having pastors fall into sin. Keep having churches fall into embezzlement. Keep having these, these things happen because the ultimate design is to get you to give up. Well, these are representatives of God, and if they're representatives of God, how good could God be? Be careful of that. Satan's design is to keep you separated from the love of God. He loves you. He loves me. But there are those that will do things that will cause us to look. But remember, our eyes always have to be focused on him and not on man. Verse 4. For if God did, or if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And I'm going to stop there. Peter basically gives an example of past judgment to prove that in the future, deliverance of the righteous and punishment of evil and wicked will take place. So a few points here. Number one, the angels that sinned. Demons, the fallen angels, they're in the same category. We know that uh, Satan led a rebellion. He uh, took a third of the angels, according to what we read in Revelation and some other scriptures, and Satan now is able with many of these angels to roam the earth. But here's what's interesting. Some are incarcerated. Some can't roam the earth. As we read in the book of Revelation, a future time where the abyss will be opened up for only a period of time for the worst of the worst, the dregs of the dregs of those angels to come out, those demons, and torment those inhabitants living on the earth. Pretty scary stuff. Uh, we also know that Jude will tell us about uh, angels also who are in chains of darkness and, and removed from the earth so they can't roam it. And what, what did they do when they sinned? Yes, they led a rebellion. It is also possible that these were the angels that in Genesis 6 left, it says, their habitation in the heavenlies and somehow get, got onto the earth. And, uh, some, and again, I don't know how this happened. I can just tell you what I read in Scripture but they apparently mated with women and had this hybrid race of these, these giants that roamed the earth. So it could have been that. It could have been the original re rebellion. It's only speculation at this point. But check this out. Satan went before God's throne and asked if he could, you know, torment Job. And God only gave him so much per permission. Satan also said, according to Jesus, that he asked permission to uh, sift the apostle Peter as wheat to test him. And he was given permission. And Jesus said, you know, you're going to eventually return and come back to me. But check this out. What about the ones that are incarcerated? This kind, of, this, this kind of gives me chills when I think about this. It leads me to believe that there's a class of angels so unruly, so wicked, that God can't even keep them on the earth. Now, of course, he's greater than them because he has the power to lock them up, right? Put them in prison. Uh, but it is possible that there's some that are so wicked that are a lot worse than the ones that we're dealing with now because they won't stay within the parameters that God gave them, so he's got he's to lock them up. Two, in all the examples mentioned, again, we can see God's uh, long-suffering here. Um, he, he's very long-suffering. He's very patient. 
Uh, if you look at all these examples, he waited a long time and, and gave them a lot of uh, space and grace before he punished them. Sodom and Gomorrah had many years. The Canaanites, it said, had 400 years. They were doing wicked things. Now, this is funny. People say, well, in the Bible, they're going to compare it to maybe the Quran or some other books and say, but there was a lot of violence in the Bible. Remember, the Canaanites, God didn't destroy them because they were infidels. God destroyed them because they, they were just so depraved incestuous relationships. There's actually um, uh, archaeological discoveries of, of the babies that they would murder their own children and put them in these little um, uh, like clay things and, and put them out as uh, charms and stuff. So if you really, and it's even worse than that, the sickness of what the Canaanites did to each other and their children, etc. God eventually had to judge them for their wickedness. But he gave them a lot of space to repent. That's what God does. That's his MO. He gives people space to repent. So the third point about this is that what we see is, have you heard from maybe some churches or religious leaders or even certain doctrine that the flood of Noah was just an allegory, Adam and Eve was a fairy tale? Well, here we're in the New Testament, thousands of years later, and the Apostle Peter is speaking about these real, actual events. It's important that we understand that. When we start allegorizing Scripture, the whole of Scripture, we get into a lot of trouble. There's theology today that take Revelation and say it's all an allegory. Be careful of that, right? Be careful of allegorization. The fourth point here is that God always separates the righteous from the, wic from the wicked before destruction. So what happens is, if you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, many years passed. A lot of this wickedness was taking place. And even Abraham said to the Lord, in a sense, if there's, I think he started with 50 righteous, and then he ended up with 10. Lord, if there's 50 righteous, would you spare the city? Sure. What about 40? You know, forgive me, how about 30? It's like, let's make a deal. He went all the way down to 10, and God said, if there's 10 righteous, I'll spare the city. So what happened was there wasn't even 10 righteous, there was four. And he pulled them out before destroying the city. Okay? So if you look at the, um, the flood of Noah, the same thing. Noah preached for a long time, didn't even win any converts. But he took the, the righteous, removed them through the ark before he destroyed the earth at that point in time. And this is really a picture of the rapture. For those of you that don't know what the rapture is, that's a point in time where the Lord will come for his people. At a certain point in time in human history, he'll interrupt it to come for his people and bring them out before the time of revelation where all these crazy things start happening and God's judgment is upon the earth because God always spares the righteous. He doesn't destroy the righteous and the wicked. Now, next Sunday, we're going to talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares, which is very fascinating. We see the same thing. He lets them grow up together and he removes the righteous before he destroys the weeds. So understand that the rapture in today's society is under attack. There's a lot of these new theologies that say, well, that's not really what the early church believed, which is not true. Uh, we don't like the word rapture because it comes from the Latin. Okay, the Greek word is harpazo. They'll pick on semantics to try to pick apart what the Bible says. So we'll call it the harpazo to make some people happy. But a rose by any other name will still smell as sweet, right? Verse 7. And he delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. 
So Lot. He's an interesting guy. On the one hand, the Bible said he was righteous. Now understand this. Let me just say this ahead of time. He wasn't righteous because of what he did. Because what he did was pretty bad in a lot of respects. Um, On the one hand, he was influenced in some ways by the evil that surrounded him. He lost his family. His wife was destroyed. And again, if you're the man of the home and your wife is that materialistic and that uh, seduced by that city, it says something for your, your spiritual leadership. So she was destroyed by looking back, but I say he has some culpability there. Uh, we also know, and there are kids here, but some pretty awful happened between him and his daughters as a result of too much alcohol. So what happened was Lot lost the battle on influence. Now, I just want to say this to you. Influence is very important. And I've used this illustration before, but it never really goes out of style. We should be influencing those that don't know the Lord that are lost. We should be influencing them for Christ, for good. Our, our spirituality in a good sense, the hope that we have, a living hope that we believe in, that should be going to them. We shouldn't be hanging out with folks so that some of the wickedness that they're doing starts to influence us. Be careful. Because that equation will always, it's, ne- it's never static, it's always dynamic. It will always be moving in one direction or the other. You're either being influenced for evil, or you're influencing others for good. I don't know what Lot was thinking, but maybe he thought he could change them. Oh, we'll just stay here for another few years. Yeah, I know this place is pretty bad, but maybe we can change them. For those of you who may be struggling with a relationship, maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. Maybe you think you can change that person. Maybe you've been in that relationship too long. And maybe you're being influenced negatively by that relationship. Be careful, Christian. Now, there were some in the Bible that were just evil and pretended, but the Bible is clear that some were righteous. Why? They were justified by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 in the Old Testament tells us that. Now, that one verse is one of a few that sparked the Reformation because the church was so corrupted, right? The just shall live by faith. We know that the Bible says that Abraham, it was imputed, it was credited to him as righteousness because of his faith in God and the promises of God. So understand that. Abraham still sinned. Abraham made some pretty bad judgment calls in, uh, in God's, when God had called him to do certain things. But because of his faith, he was justified. Now, taking this as a whole, at the very least, when we read, read this, this should give us pause. Because when we play with fire, we will eventually get burned. And we have to ask ourselves, what am I into today? I don't know. I can't read your minds. I can't see behind your eyeballs what's going on in the brain, what you're thinking as I'm speaking, what person pops up as I'm talking to you. But what are you into? What are you into maybe that you shouldn't be into? Maybe God is speaking to you through this message today. What is it that you know that's changing your life for the worst because of what you're involved in? The Bible says that there's always, right now, there's time to repent. The scripture is clear about that. And God knows how to deliver us from those temptations and those trials. But will we accept his lifeline? It's available. It's available. Inevitably, anytime I preach the word, there's somebody that comes up to me and says, you just said something today that really hit me right in the heart. It's because I'm going through this right now. And there's many who don't tell me what they're going through. You know, it's, it's may not, may not even be my business, but the word is God, word of God is powerful 
And it will do those things. It will speak to your heart. It will speak to a situation that you may be involved with right now. Verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So God's plan is twofold. Number one, to deliver the righteous out of temptation. Now, that word pirasmos in the Greek is a contextual word. It can either be used as a trial, as a proving, or a trial by temptation. Number one, we know that 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that with any sin, any temptation, there's always an escape route. Anytime in your life, if you look at a sin, you know that you weren't forced to do that sin, that there was always a way out, but we might not have taken that life preserver. We might not have taken that out. Also, he also knows how to deliver us from trials. Revelation 3.10, another proof text for the rapture, says that I will preserve you, believers, from the hour of trial that is to come upon the whole earth. No one's going to escape it in the time of Revelation, right? I will preserve you from that hour of trial that will come upon the whole earth. So we'll be removed from that hour of trial. So he knows how to deliver us out of things that are destructive, especially to our souls. Jesus says that don't fear the one that can just kill your body, murderer, somebody who can kill you. Fear the one who can, after death, take the soul also, a healthy reverence for God. So two, number one, delivering the righteous. Number two, reserving the unjust for punishment. Now, there are some that, listen, when I sin, I'm not happy about it. I have to repent. I'm embarrassed. Even if it's just me and the Lord, I'm still embarrassed. Sin vexes me. Sin vexed Lot. However, there are some that don't, that are not vexed by sin. They enjoy it. They indulge in it. And if you're part of the Christian community or you call yourself a believer and you're starting to really like it and that still small voice that's telling you you shouldn't be doing this starts to go away because you're quenching the Holy Spirit, you're in a bad place. Be very, very careful. Very careful. Now, I would say this, that no one can outfox or figure out God. That's clear in Scripture. But in some, day, in some ways, God is predictable. Well, how could you say that? How could you say that about God Almighty? But I will tell you that God's predictability is tied to God's goodness. Here's an example. A million times out of a million times, God's not going to lie. Ah, oh, he's so predictable. But his predictability is tied to his goodness, right? A million times out of a million times, God's going to keep his promises. Pfft, he's so predictable. But again, it's tied to his goodness. God's MO, his modus operandi, has always been to remove the righteous before he destroys the wicked. And we're going to see that in the wheat and the tares next Sunday. It's part of his predictability, right? Now, again, God's family took casualties. Let that be a lesson to us. Lot was saved, and maybe, have, you know, probably he went to the kingdom, and possibly, like the Apostle Paul says, that he barely got into the kingdom as to escape by fire. That's not the way I want to go out. When I meet my Lord and Savior, listen, I know he's going to tell me all the, all the dumb stuff I did, all the self-centered stuff I did, and that I probably blew some opportunities because I was thinking about myself. But for the most part, I, I want to hear him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Listen, I'm, going to, I'm just going to love that. Oh, to please my Father in heaven. When you love someone, when you love your kid, or you love your spouse, or you love... Um, like Pastor Anthony was speaking about his relative, just to go visit him in the hospital, you want to do the things that please them. You want to do things that make them smile. See, remember, 
When we give our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in God's family. We don't have to walk around like this, waiting for something to happen. We have joy. It's inexpressible joy. We have hope. So that I know that when I meet, if today I breathe my last, you know, when I meet the Lord, I'm not going to go in fear because I know he loves me. And I just want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. So this is about the unrighteous and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, comparison here, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So the chapter starts out with the false prophets and teachers. Um, Last Sunday we were encouraged by the true prophets and teachers and the testimony of God's word and the Holy Spirit and the witness of Jesus Christ in, in his word But we switch today to some of the bad news, the truth of reality is the false prophets and teachers, the surety of judgment, and we end here with the pretty much uh, lifestyle of the heretics. Two characteristics that are uh, indigenous to these heretics. Number one, they'll walk in the flesh in the lust of uncleanness or contamination, contamination by the world's vices and sin. Now, you can see some today who do the same thing. You know, they may be one way in church. Uh, gee, I, I kind of, well, it's not funny. It's actually sad, but it, it just kind of blows you away when you read about this one guy who was a serial killer, and he was a deacon in his church. He was leading a double life, obviously. But eventually, the, the lifestyle of a person who's a false teacher, a false leader, a false shepherd, it will start to come out. Mostly, oftentimes, it comes out here but it certainly will come out in the judgment and God will deal with it quickly and swiftly. Uh, but what we'll see is they're contaminated by the world, even in a lesser sense. Those that say, hey, don't go to a church where they talk about hell. You know, they're so uptight about that. You know, that's so, you know, first century. I mean, we're different today. Uh, God's word, it, you know, we have to look at it in light of the culture. That's a new thing now. But the bottom line is that God's word doesn't change. And God does still desire holiness for us. And there are some that will teach, lighten up on the things of, of you know, God's commandments. Don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. It's not an issue anymore. But that's not true. It's that uncleanness and contamination. We start to look like the world. The second point is they despise authority. They're self-willed, unaccountable, and won't submit to anyone, let alone the Lord. It's that rebel mentality. I remember as a new believer, I still had a lot of that rebel mentality. And as much as I try to insert myself, listen, I don't mind telling you about all the mistakes I've made. As much as I try to insert myself into some type of ministry, my pastor couldn't use me. He actually one time laughed at me, (laughs) as I remember. And I got so frustrated, but I realized the problem was with me, not with him, right? So that rebel mentality, uh, if we're really mature, we realize that we have to be accountable, we have to submit and uh, especially we need to submit to the Lord and his will. They're presumptuous, they're audacious, even to the point it says here of slandering dignitaries. In the original language, it means glorious ones. Now, there's a lot of different ideas on what this means. It's, it's a vague term. It could be that these false teachers in their messages, they slander maybe angels or even uh, Christ is a glorious one or some of his teachings not really sure here, or a complete denial of Christ's message. But conversely, verse 11, he says, even the angels, God's angels, the good ones, the archangels, right? 
in their great power and authority, they're so disciplined in their ranks that they never take cheap shots. Even when the, uh, Michael was, the archangel was disputing about the body of Moses with Satan, and we're going to read this in, I believe it's Jude, uh, he says, the Lord rebuke you. S- Michael didn't even slander Satan. He said, you know what, let the Lord deal with you. Because they're so disciplined, they're so under subjection, they're so in submission to the Lord that they never walk out of their ranks. You know what I'm saying? However, as human beings, you know, it's amazing how some will uh, taunt God and tempt God and, and slander, write books about God. God isn't great. You know, these, the God delusion, you've seen some of these, these books. Uh, but even the angels won't slander the false teachers or take cheap shots at them. So in context, the false teachers in Peter's day were drawing from the church. It worked for them financially. It paid off. However, 2,000 years later, not a whole lot has changed. We're going to end there, but I do want to just uh, talk about uh, destruction, damnation, hell, what we understand as hell. And I looked up the word. The word hell is, uh, I think it's a Middle English word. There's a hale that, that comes from German. But really, hell, to what we understand, is the lake of fire. That's the last point uh, of the road for the unrighteous. And we'll just go through this. Number one, before the cross of Christ, in Luke 16, we see the rich man and Lazarus. They were at different places uh, in, in Hades, right? They were different holding tanks. In the one section, those who were good that died, because they were under, one that weren't under the blood of Christ yet, he didn't die for their sins, they were in a good place with Abraham, and then there was a bad place uh, that was hot, it was tormentous, you're thirsty, incredible thirst, but there was some communication with those two places because the, uh, the rich man was speaking to Abraham about Lazarus and all he wanted was a drop of water. So it's a bad place to be. We know that there's an abyss in Revelation. We speak about Tartarus here, uh, separate holding tanks for the wicked angels and demons until the final judgment. And then we move on to the cross. Jesus Christ dies. He, he sheds his blood for the sins of the world. The Bible tells us in Ephesians, before he ascended to be with the Father, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. This is, again, this is one of those things that gives me chills because you get an insight into the spiritual realm. He frees the captives according to Isaiah 61. He releases those in that part of Hades because he's already paid this for for their sins, past, present, future. They get free. The ones in the bad part, he preaches victory to them. Basically, that's it. The war is over. You've lost. Um, then what we see what happens is in the future, the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, for those that are not under the blood, for those have, who have rebelled under God's way of salvation, this is pretty wild. It says that the sea, death, and Hades give up the dead. They're judged before God's throne, and then they're sent into the lake of fire for eternity. So that's our really understanding of what hell truly is. Uh, the lake of fire conditions, number one, complete separation from God. Now, to the atheist, that might sound like a great vacation from God. They finally get to get away from him. However, what they don't realize is right here on the earth, even if you don't believe, you're still enjoying the pleasures of God's creation, of what you see in, in the flowers and you know, the beauty of nature outside, the pleasures of the human body. So you're still enjoying the pleasures of what God has created, whether you like it or not. There will be a point in time where you're eternally separated from God. You won't enjoy those pleasures. Number two, there appears to be unending darkness. And number three, there's pain and torment and weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
eternally being burned with no chance of relief. Not a pretty picture. Matthew 22 and 25. Again, some will not speak about this from the pulpit, but I need to do my job is what God has called me to do. I need you to be aware of what you're going to be dealing with if you reject God. Uh, So the question is, how can that be? Fire without annihilation. Darkness, if there's fire, remember, God created it. He created this universe, uh, and he created gravity, what is it, 9.8 feet per second square or meters per second square. You fall at that rate. Uh, There's a lot of different properties, one atmosphere of pressure we live under. So there's physical properties that God has created in this creation. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that God does prepare the lake of fire. He, he prepares it to the way he needs to prepare it so that the eternal judgment can take place. Now, you might say, some may say, if you don't know the scripture, well, that's kind of mean. Again, nobody has to go there. God's desire is for all the world to be saved. And lastly, this is why we support missionaries to many places. Uh, any, any missionary with a decent testimony can come to us and we'll support them. Right? We'll support them on, on a regular basis. Um, we give free cases of Bibles to anyone who wants them, and we preach God's whole word from this pulpit to bring the real message of hope to a hopeless world. Jesus says this, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life. He shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Let's pray.